equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This way with good intentions Ah, tēnei te mihi Te hunga mate Rātou Kua whetūrangitia ki te koro wai o ranginui Ka whakaaro ake tātou i tēnei wā E pāna ki a tātou rangatira, a tātou hoa, a whiso, e takotou ana ki te poho tōna hoanau. Ka iri te kapua pauri ki runga i a tātou o te ao Tōrangapu, o te ao Pacifica, te ao Māori, ao te aroa whānui i tēnei wā, nā te wehinga o tēnei rangatira o tātou. Nō reira, ka tuku au i nā mihi ki ona whānau i tōna wahine me ona tamahine i tēnei wā pauri e kore e mutu nga mihi e kore e mutu e kore e mimiti te aroha ki a koe e te hoa nō reira aptiono tātai ono rātou ki a rātou te hunga mate ki te hunga mate aptiono tātai hono tātou ki a tātou te hunga ora e tū ana ki te ao mārama tēnā tātou katoa kia ora, over to you Carl kia ora Jack, welcome to one of two hundred uh, independent politics and media podcast. Horrible news this week. Um, and thank you, Jack Fiumahi, um, for mm-hmm. Professor Collins, uh, who we lost earlier in the week. Horrible tragedy. Uh, and all our thoughts uh, from ourselves and, and the rest of the crew uh, out to friends, family, and community. Of us, just great human being. We'll start the podcast today just reading from Efeso's maiden speech uh, because there's so much in there that I think should be at the center of our politics here in Aotearoa and some of the things we're going to talk about today are directly relevant to it. So I'll read uh, this short passage uh, and then we'll do intros uh, properly and move into the the wider podcast. It's hard to be poor. It's expensive to be poor. And moreover, public discourse is making it socially unacceptable to be poor. Whether it's bashing on beneficiaries, dragging our feet towards a living wage, throwing shade on school breakfast programs, or restricting people's ability to collectively bargain for fairer working conditions, we must do better to lift aspirations and the lived realities of all our people. To that end, I want to say to this house with complete surety, that the neoliberal experiment of the 1980s has failed. The economics of creating unemployment to manage inflation is farcical when domestic inflation in New Zealand has been driven by big corporates making excessive profits. It's time to draw a line in the sand. And alongside my colleagues here in Te Pāti Kākariki, we've come as the pallbearers of neoliberalism to bury these shallow, insufferable ideas once and for all. And this, sir, is our act of love. I'm joined by my co-hosts, uh, Jack McDonald. Welcome. How you doing? Got a call. I'm good. Um, I'm all right. <laughs> Obviously, in the current context, I'm with a fissile and everything that's going on in the world, it's hard to be all right sometimes, but it's important that we try. And Simon, welcome back. Hello. Thank you for having me back. So this current uh, government is doing all the things, all the bad things mentioned in that passage. And at the beginning of the week, Christopher Luxon did a State of the Nation speech where he brought back rhetoric that I'm I'm genuinely not sure when the last time we saw a, a leader of the country talk that viciously about people who are accessing welfare. Like I don't I don't think even you go back to the previous national government, John John Key would never have done it like that, even. Like, this is going back to the early 90s. This is like Ruth Richardson kind of style nastiness. Um, you, I mean, Not to say we haven't seen this rhetoric uh, at all over the last couple of decades, but it's usually when ACT were down on 1% and trying their, their hardest to, to drag themselves up with some class warfare. Um, and the way in which it was pitched is this really kind of expedient, um, sniveling excuse for the failures of the government so far. This, uh, I think it started with, I've got to level with you, New Zealand. 
which <laughs> it's like it's just frightful and none of the media who have just been reporting this as obviously just what the prime minister said are mm. doing their due diligence um because this is a this is a serious shift um in the values that at least <laughs> the purported values uh that guide our country because uh you know like Afeso alluded to in his maiden speech this is a a process of project that has been going on since the 80s uh to undervalue to to strip rights and respect from workers through through neoliberal policies but to be so barefaced about it really something feels a little bit new about that yeah and i think you know part of the reason for that you know under john key's government there was certainly the same policies and values in action um but john key managed to couch things in a more positive way and i think part of the reason for that is that um as i was writing about in my piece um with um everything that materia did in the 2017 election um and what that led to including the confidence and supply agreement between labor and the greens on transforming the welfare system uh and the establishment of the welfare expert advisory group there has been a shift away from what we had seen for decades um since the early 90s in terms of um, a constant attack on beneficiaries although labor and the greens didn't succeed in overhauling the welfare system um and their failure to do so has actually opened up this opportunity for um this kind of rhetoric that has that there was still there was still a humanization of beneficiaries um over the last five to six years compared to what we had seen uh for the last three decades so that i think is why christopher luxon uh, and his government have gone so hard on the offensive um because they have to kind of shift that window of discourse back um and i don't think it's going to be very difficult for them because of that failure by labor and the greens to actually do what they said they were going to do and you know like like in a striking similarity with the early 90s national is essentially trying to manufacture an economic crisis and blaming um beneficiaries and gangs and all of the usual suspects for the woes of the country so it's textbook right-wing playbook in that sense but i think what's so striking about it is that we're used to um our leaders even on the right usually trying to couch things in a positive way the country's moving forward blah 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 um but christopher luxon has certainly um not doing that and you know I, but I do think it's important that we remember that even under John Key's government, he cut the training centre allowance and they used um, Paula Bennett, Paula Bennett uh, to um, be the um, anti-beneficiary person, um, given especially given her background as a solo mother on the DPB, which they're now also doing with Louise Upston, who apparently has the same background. So, um, you know, you can definitely see the similarities there as well. Yeah. I just, if you were wondering if there was going to be pushback against any of this, because, you know, as you point out, Jack, it's so obvious and it's clear that they're sort of laying the groundwork, not only for people to begin to blame the pain that they've been feeling about the total lack of recovery after, you know, the initial pandemic shock, but also that what they're stripping out the wiring of the country is going to do and sort of psychologically preparing people not to blame them for it. If you'd like to know if there was going to be pushback against that, I just happened across this opinion piece from National Affairs Editor Andrea Vance about uh, Luxon and his, um, his State of the Nation speech. It says, National's leader gave his first State of the Nation speech as Prime Minister yesterday, and something has shifted. An enthusiasm of the, quote, big turnaround job, Christopher Luxon has transformed his oratory style. Up until now, the former CEO has clung to management speak. Robotic prose complemented with a lifeless delivery. Yesterday's speech was good. Better still was the presentation. And it's called Who Deprogrammed the PM? It's about how, how much of a statesman he is and how, how fluent he was and looked when he talked about killing the poor, which is just amazing, really. If you were thinking about the state of our press right now, Kyle, you want to say something? I can see it. Yeah, it's, it's given Depper uh, young nationalist vibes, eh? Ugh. Yeah, it's, it's so gross. It's <laughs> and this is you know this is what we've 
just whinged about for the last five years on this podcast yeah. is the way that the political gallery and and people reporting on politics in this country in particular uh, put this perception lens over everything to the detriment of everything else, to the extreme detriment of everything else. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've seen plenty of other takes along those lines. Interesting to use the words like deprogramming because it's it's stepping that line really close to some of those WEF um, conspiracy theorists. Like it's trying to pull those like those folks inside the fold. Like, oh look, he he might be your guy. You know, this guy he's draining the swamp. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he, you know, even if yeah. Christopher Luxon doesn't have the uh, charisma or intellect um, or personality in general mm-hmm. to to be that Trump like figure um mm. either as a as theater so as a constructed uh personality um or because that's just who he is the powers that be are going to try and make him out uh as that sort of that sort of guy certainly uh there's a broad dislike uh for people like winston peters and uh david seymour that can never allow them to be that guy that guy here they're always going to be horrible little dogs just yapping at the at the corners and they'll they'll do their job at bringing uh certain reactionary elements into the fold um but you need a horrible disgusting man at the top of a a large party to drive some of these horrible disgusting policies into into public um and into reality and it's looking that's what we're going to try and do with Luxon. And I expect this stuff to get markedly worse because in the last few months, the National Party is just running roughshod over democratic process. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more later. Oh, yeah. Um, and just getting away with it. like, mm-hmm. And then, as, as you say, Jack, blaming that on beneficiaries. I, you know, this is like this is this is classic, not just a right wing tactic, um, but like a far right tactic. This is, mm-hmm. um, and I also want to be very clear that it's just a lie. You know, mm-hmm. they, it, there's this kind of, and I guess this is every Western country, but it's in the psyche of the the electorate that there are these uh, this type of character called doll bludger, um, who just sits around on the benefit and takes a hard earned taxpayer dollars and does nothing and sorry that person just doesn't fucking exist i don't i don't give a shit what people are like, oh maybe it must be at least one or two who are like that nah man you if you've never like been on a benefit you can shut your fucking mouth and if you have been on a benefit and you're doing what paula bennett or louise upston are doing then you're a class trader um and you can do similarly remove yourself from public life because there is nothing for you to add um, to the well-being of this country or or public office in any respect. It's so hard to be living in those conditions in current day New Zealand. And many of the people uh, who are who need support from the government cannot work, you know, or they have they can work a little bit, but they are a sole parent. Um, they're disabled in some way. One of the worst, nastiest things that i think we've ever done with the welfare program is to move everything to this thing called job seeker and then treat everyone as in there as if they can be employed for 40 hours a week um and therefore it's their fault if they're not um searching for jobs uh and trying to get employed um and then eventually leaving the benefit and um entering full-time employment and it's just not it's not reality and Christopher Luxon knows it's not reality. And Louise Upston knows that's not the reality. They know exactly what the numbers are. Um, and they know exactly the number of people who who cannot work. Uh, and they're choosing to smear them all, because this goes beyond a characterization, for the benefit of, I, I don't even know who it's for, their, their own reactionary policy. And it, all the media knows this as well. Everyone knows this. It's, it's fucking open information. There's been some really good pushback from different advocates. Um, Max Harris had a really good slot um, on one of the breakfast programs, uh, being very, very clear about how the language is being used here um, and the need to actually support people. But 
the majority of the media are just using that framing. And no, while knowing, I want to be very clear about this again, while knowing that it's not true. Well, exactly. It's not true. And we need to remember, um, uh, Fessel reminds us in the excerpt of his speech that you read out, that um, unemployment is deliberately manufactured and that the shift away from a full employment economy in the 70s and 80s was a deliberate one. And the um, and so their needs in this um, in this neoliberal economy, there needs to be a, a level of unemployment. And so even those who aren't on um, who aren't uh, disabled or sick, um, and even you know, just to point out as well, like I think the other benefit category my father's on is called the supported living payment uh, for those who you know have long term disability or health issues, even with that one, they have to go and um, prove that they still have that condition every few months or something. So, you know, it, it's disgusting. But for those who are genuinely not able to find work, um, there's a reason for that. It's because the economy is not designed in such a way that enables them to work. And I think it's very easy to to get that fact. And we have to continually remind, us because, remind ourselves because uh, not only uh, are the beneficiaries uh, blamed for the problems of the economy. Uh, the, the economy is the reason why they're beneficiaries. So it's this vicious, vicious cycle of um, of hate, really. And um, it's it's directed towards the most vulnerable uh, in our society who are just trying to fucking, you know, put food on the table and pay the bills and, you know, ensure that um, their whanau can survive um, in a really challenging world. So, yeah, it, it, it's the... It's the epitome of cruelty um, and dehumanization, and you know I think that there's I'm I'm just just equally disgusted with the left to be honest, uh, because you know we had this opportunity over the last six years to really shift that narrative of dehumanization. Um, people like Matidia, people like the advocates like you know CPAG or All Connection Against Poverty, the We Are Beneficiaries campaign gave us the, an opportunity, an almost once in a generation opportunity to uh, shift those narratives, um, to embed uh, the the relived realities of beneficiaries in public policy, and that was squandered uh, by liberal centrism, timidity and moderation that epitomised the last uh, Labour-led government. And, you know, despite the fact that it's because of the Greens, but more because of the Matsidia Tūrei-led Greens, that it was in that confidence and supply agreement, um, you know, this really speaks to the failure of Greens in government as well, because, you know, we're seeing now the ability of David Seymour to uh, leverage, you know, his his coalition agreement to push through this treaty principles bill, even though Christopher Luxon, no one wants it, it's... Um, blah, 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 we all know uh, that story. And yet the Greens weren't able to um, implement one of the core parts of their confidence and supply agreement that was fundamental to supposedly why they were meant to be in government. So, um, yeah, despite all of the great advocates in the Greens um, who continue to push this issue, like Ricardo, like Marama, um, it really does speak to the failure um, and the inadequacies of the Greens' theory of change and uh, their political strategy. Uh, and I hope that that starts to change um, under uh, the new leadership arrangements with Marama and Chloe. But um, yeah, to date, it has, this has been a demonstrable, this this issue shows how it was a demonstrable failure and um, has actually potentially done more harm than good uh, because there was no significant pressure with inside parliament on Labour in terms of welfare um, over that six years. Yeah. And that's all during a time, of course, where even greater changes than what National Act New Zealand First are making right now were possible with a Labour majority. And people will point to say, oh, but, you know, the Greens, no, they couldn't do anything because Labour didn't need them. And again, it's just, as you say, Jack, like, what is your theory of change? What, like, there's no way to pressure people at all? Yeah. And in the first term, they did need them. And yet, um, they let them push the issue to an advisory group, which took years, um, and then you know um, slowly implement this change where they could have just demanded it overnight. To be perfectly yeah. honest, and yet they just did not um, understand. And you know, I was in the um, I was in the Greens when that coalition, um, sorry, confidence supply agreement was negotiated. I was on the I think it was called, what was it called the negotiation consultation group, which was a representative group of members who were working with the negotiators to try and get um, a deal that would be acceptable to the party. And that was one of the 
fundamentally most important things. Um, it was sold to the members on the basis that we would achieve this overhaul of the welfare system that Matidia had campaigned on. And uh, and so essentially it was a lie to the members in the sense that those negotiators, the, the, the co-leaders, the chief of staff, um, failed to deliver on that. And, you know, um, it's just it's just something that we can't forget. And um, if we're going to succeed um, as as progressives in politics, we need to hold our own to account. And, you know, I don't think that's been done on this issue. Um, and, you know, it's a good example of how we need a reckoning in terms of actually ensuring that progressive and even left-wing radical MPs are held to account because, you know, they're there as representatives of the movement and they need to be... Um, accountable as such and labor is not their friend exactly um and it's just been too long as as treating them as um somehow partners to any progressive politics there needs to be an antagonism there uh we can only hope uh and you know even if the left hasn't learned uh from those six years and, and what could have been the right certainly has learned uh and they are just on the warpath just doing as much as possible, unwinding as much as possible, destroying as much as possible, because they understand that there's no checks and balances. You know, they they saw some of the stuff the Labour was able to do with a legitimate crisis. And like, oh, we can probably do that too with a fake crisis. Plus business and uh, media are kind of on our side and everyone's struggling pretty badly. Uh, I reckon we can pull this off. And look, they're doing it. I'm not going to hand it to them though, Philip. <laughs> if you're if you're listening to this, uh, it's 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 really nasty shit, and it's but it's also really easy for them to do. Uh, this is how Western democracies are set up: um, is for the capital class to be able to run roughshod over norms and checks and balances, and you know whatever passes for a constitution uh, when capital wants them to or needs them to. And we've seen this play out in every other Western democracy. You know, when when it was happening in the UK under Boris Johnson a few years back, we we're talking about it on the podcast about look, we have to be aware that this can happen here as well. Um, but New Zealand exceptionalism kicks in, and it's like, oh no, like it can't possibly happen here. Everyone kind of plays by the same rules, and that's why Labour actually can't isn't allowed to do anything because it will give permission to uh, the right wing to to do those things themselves. They don't need permission. Like they, they never needed to be shown the way to to break the rules. They know how to do it naturally because they've done it their entire lives. They're born into this. And we're seeing that occur in real time in a lot of really and in a lot of ways I don't think we truly understand how horrific they're gonna be over the next decade. They're doing things which are going to unwind the progress of the last hundred years, such as it is. They, they really, really are. Um, and I'm thinking about in terms of education, health, and infrastructure, uh, taxation, um, the way that we treat property. Um, you know, every every government since the 80s has obviously been a part of this, but this national-led coalition is trying to to speed up that process. You thought the, the, um, the transfer of wealth during COVID that Grant Robertson oversaw was bad. It was really, really bad. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> um, they're about to do a a retroactive cash transfer to landlords, uh, like to the tune of about $3 billion. Yeah, damn the doll bludgers who are actually raising children in our society, but the parasites that just get income by virtue and dint of having been born in the right generation or owning land or coming from wealth. Boy, howdy, they deserve a bit of welfare, don't they? You know, it's infuriating. And unfortunately, we kind of have to watch it happen because as you say, there's this kind of TikTok that happens. I think, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking again about the sort of media stuff. I've just brought up uh, this piece in the post. That's how the government justifies crackdown on welfare recipients. And this is, I think, the, the kind of premier example of the, the other extreme which you're allowed to have, right? So one of the bounds, one of the limits in public discourse in the press is what Andrew Vance does, which is, well, did in that last piece, which is talking about, you know, how much of a statesman Luxon is and kind of, you know, basically if he's charismaless, lifting him on a palanquin so he can be a little pillow princess to get his stuff across the line, right? And on the other end, 
is this kind of both sides brained, like, let's see how clever and smart these operators are, you know, how the government justifies crackdown on welfare recipients. The first couple of graphs just read, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon has launched an opening salvo in the government's promised war on welfare dependency. So he's adopting their language for starters, bringing the full weight of financial sanctions down on beneficiaries who don't take obligatory steps to find work. Cue the outrage already predicted by the Prime Minister. You see, he's a precog. It's Minority Report. He's just, he's seeing the stuff before it happens. He's a genius, right? And this is all talking about it like it's a chess match. And toward the end, there's just this little bit at the end, which says, the decades-old political debate, again, just discursive, it's just a debate between Labour's emphasis on the welfare state and National's insistence on rights and responsibilities. Won't end here. The pendulum is just swinging right again. We're... When I read something like that, I think about there's this small section in The Big Short where Brad Pitt's character says to the two young guys who are dancing just because they've made out like bandits on this deal. He's like, every percentage which unemployment goes up, so many thousands of people die. And I need you to understand that. So don't dance. And I think about that when I read these people talking about this chess match between how the pendulum is just swinging right. And this is what how National is cleverly using this rhetoric to get through some of its policies across the line and labor scrambling and it's it's sport it's chess or it's a rugby match or something like that some other kind of metaphor this kind of west wing brain about it but in truth this affects real people and this affects like jack uh you mentioned someone that you know and my my mother again was somebody who had chronic illness and had to constantly prove even though she was also working part-time as much as she could, she had to prove constantly to wins that she was still sick with a chronic illness. You know, it's humiliating, right? For so many of these people, for thousands and thousands of people. And people will suffer from this. National has included people with cancer, people with disabilities in its attacks. So they're not just talking about you know, able-bodied people who also have a right to welfare, but they're not just talking about those people. They're talking about killing human beings. This is going to be what happened in the UK in the 2010s where people and their thousands died from austerity. And we won't see it. It'll be invisible, but this is social murder. And people in the press will talk about it like this is some kind of cerebral game. And I want people to be aware of that every time they read it and think about the human cost behind all of this every time that it happens. Something else that you said, which I wanted to pick up on, Jack, was mentioning that one of the main functions of the Reserve Bank is to create a certain level of unemployment. And there are certain, there are different analyses of this. I think, you know, there's like the classic Marxist analysis that there needs to be a reserve army of labor and you need to you need to threaten people with, you know, precarity to force them into working conditions, which are terrible. I think that all of these are kind of good lenses you can view it through. But just the the bare reality that the government sets the percentage of unemployment and some people will just lose that lottery and then they punish those people for doing it because that's a great scapegoat. I'm reminded of John Milton, you know, those who have put out the people's eyes reproach them of their blindness. This is something that we do in our society now, apparently. And it's quite concerning that people could fall for it because if nothing else, if there is a person who has a platform that is nationally broadcast where they're talking about how the people who rely on public money to survive until they can get on their feet or because in some other way they have um, some kind of need, those are the people who are behind your suffering. Please consider the fact that that vast group of people doesn't have access to a microphone, but some people do. The people who are telling you to blame those people who don't have access to a national platform and a microphone. And think about the logic of what they're selling you. Yeah, absolutely. It's a conglomeration of just some of the sickest rhetoric. uh, And I don't even know if calling it a value system is correct anymore because it can't, it just can't be balanced against like, even if you're doing a true both sides, right? Like, and and being objective about like, this is what they think. And this is what they think. They're, They're not talking about the same reality anymore. I was talking about someone with it yes, uh, yesterday, uh, but you know the creation of of reality uh, by the right. Fuck, who was who were they talking to? I don't know. Cut this bit. But you know, something said by a, a Republican advisor, like uh, two journalists um, in the US, uh, which is basically you guys are reporting on reality. We make it. 
Um, and we're seeing a full return to that uh, by right-wingers in, in Western democracies. Right? We're just going to do this stuff. Like, report it on all you want. This is just, a, you can have no impact. But in this in this generation, the media are along for the ride. They are they're almost entirely captured uh, by the capital class and in a way that I don't think has existed previously. I'd like blah, 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 Murdoch, yada, yada, yada. You know, we always go on about this. It, it's bullshit. You know, like every single one of these papers is running real estate ads. I'm sorry. You're all, you're all taken. There's some good people in there, whatever. It doesn't matter. The general miasma is that this you're in support of this stuff unless you're fully against it. Um, and I don't know what the solution is to that in the in the short term. Um, I, I don't think we have a civic society currently in in New Zealand that is capable of responding to that. You know, we're we're like one small indie media out, outlet getting really fucking mad about this, and you'll see, you know, maybe an opinion piece by John Campbell. He, he's getting pretty angry recently, and and a few other people here and there. But by and large, it's the kind of pieces that you're talking about, Simon, um, with this. Oh, this is pretty savvy. Oh, looks like National have pulled one over the electorate again. Uh, yeah, why? How? How are they doing that? Like, if you know that they're doing this, political reporters, if you know that they're doing this, if you know this is how they operate, if you know they're sharp and cunning um, political operators, why aren't you reporting on it as if they are and as if they're trying to fool you and get you to amplify their message? And the answer is just as far as uh, Occam's razor goes, because they're complicit and they know exactly what's happening, um, but they prefer to be on that side uh, than the side of the rest of us, you know, and it's, you know, 80% of us who are going to be crushed under the boot um, of an increasingly reactionary right-wing capital project. Uh, what you said, uh, Kyle, about uh, the lack of a effective functioning civil society in Aotearoa is so um, true and you know that ties into the same attack that we saw uh, in wholesale neoliberal revolution that we saw in the 80s and 90s which you know um, broke the union broke the back of the union movement um, and um, and you know all of those things but I wanted to reflect on the fact that there's a lot the the left as a whole in Aotearoa can learn from Te Ao Māori and what um, is happening in Māori politics right now because there is an effective civil society in Te Ao Māori, and we saw that um, this year um, in terms of the mobilisation against the government's agenda, which has really come to define the, the well, Christopher Luxon's term of government so far, but certainly the response to it. And, you know, for the Māori king to be able to put out a call and get over 10,000 people, um, you know, in less than a month to go to Tūranga Waiwai um, to mobilise, then, you know, tens of thousands of people also at Waitangi um, you know, people couldn't even uh, get into the Bay of Islands. The traffic was so bad. Um, it was that um, huge, the response. And, you know, that kind of ties into a much broader um, cultural revitalization within Te Ao Māori, um, and, but also a revitalization of, of, of activism and political action that really kind of, for me, was... Um, symbolized by Ihumatao and the way that um, that was led by um, youth mobilization, but also really importantly, um, the intersection of art, culture and politics and the ability to leverage um, artistic spaces and um, cultural identity and strength as a way to um, actually achieve political change. And that is ongoing. Um, within Te Ao Māori, um, you know, the, if you watch Kapahaka, for example, you'll see that almost every group has a song that is political. Um, you know, they're using stages um, to actually um, um, politicise um, a whole generation of Māori um, young people. And, you know, I just think that um, other than, of course, notable and, and important um, exceptions, the Pākehā left in Aotearoa um, just doesn't have those equivalent spaces. And, um, yeah, I think if we're to succeed in resisting against this decades-long capitalist dominance, um, then we really have to think outside the box and 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 not keep doing the same things because, as um, you both have spoken so eloquently about, we're not going to get um, cut through uh, within um, the establishment media and so, you know, we have to create our own forms of media and um, 
and and our own modes of organizing if we're going to be successful. Yeah, and we're really lucky in Aotearoa that um, Māori are here and are organizing. One of the greatest frustrations to me um, as someone on the left, air quotes, uh, is this reactionary element um, who I just don't see as left-wing in any way that's useful um, at this point. Who'll who'll go on this like, oh, we can't be woke, like we have to appeal to workers, um, and push back against what they see as the identity politics of including uh Ta'o Maori um and Maori. Who are the workers? Who yeah, are the workers, bitch? <laughs> <laughs> um and it's like, it's like yeah. where where are where are we we're gonna get our alternative systems from in, in this context? We're we're we are incredibly fortunate uh here that as you say, that there is a civil society here that is an alternative to the the way that we've been doing stuff for the last hundred years. Uh, I like we have an opportunity here that very few other countries have. Indigenous politics is left politics, um, and anyone saying otherwise is at least a little bit racist. There's this there's this con- like this constant call like, oh, we just need an outright works party, um, and it leaves all the identity politics behind. And it's like, fuck you, you like. Anyone saying that just does not understand history and does not understand the fabric of this country or of any country or of any people. What are you going to build that with, bro? Like, yeah, you're going to, yeah, okay, go on. Start start getting out and getting into every fucking workplace. The, the unions might help you somehow. Uh, but, you know, as, as you mentioned, Jack, uh, they've been somewhat defunct since the 80s. Well, and I shouldn't say completely defunct because I work for the union movement now. But um, you know. <laughs> no, that's, this is why I said somewhat. This is why I said somewhat. <laughs> yeah. And they are cancelled, owned in some important <laughs> spaces. But um, you know that thing that you're talking about, Kyle, in terms of um, you know this whole resistance to so-called wokeism or identity politics is so insidious, and you know it's not a new thing. Obviously, the language of woke and and, and that whole debate is, is relatively new. But in a former life, um, when I was still involved in um, green politics, I was in a meeting and a very senior left-wing um, figure was um, engaging in the most horrific beneficiary bashing um, and arguing against the idea that the Greens should be standing up for beneficiaries and running a campaign to, um, to lift uh, their voices and their lived experiences. And I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, because this person was considered one of the most important leaders in the left of New Zealand in the last 30 years. And it just really shows that um, third-way politics has um, embedded the narratives of neoliberalism better than the neoliberals ever could have. And, you know, like, if you look at this whole dehumanisation of beneficiaries, there's an an amazing um, analysis by um, Michelle Alexander, um, a black American um, academic, who talked about the fact that um, you know the the um, the Reagan Reaganomics or you know the, the policies of Thatcher we've seen it the same all around the world um, deindustrialized um, removed industry subsidies um, created this level of unemployment um, but then instead of responding and, and some of those were um, you know natural sh- not natural but they were um, you know, organic shifts in capitalism um, and the way that capitalist economies um, were evolving. And anyway, the state, instead of responding with caring compassion and trying to find ways to um, support people through these economic changes, instead they responded with outright cruelty. They responded with uh, the war on drugs. They responded with um, the, um, the, in the US, the crime bill. Uh, they responded with um, this outright assault on on welfare and social security and you know i guess the figurehead of that in the u.s was bill clinton and we saw similar with tony blair um and all around the world um they uh you know michael cullen and helen clark um you know they did embed anti-beneficiary narratives and certainly anti-gang and anti-drug narratives and you know like that's epitomized um with Bill Clinton, you know, his whole thing around welfare queens. But these, this language often comes from the third way. Um, and I think it's really important that we continue to remember that because it is still an ongoing fight within um, the so-called left to even recognise the humanity um, of of the people who we're supposedly fighting for. So, yeah. Absolutely. For all the praise for Grant Robertson that's come out recently, this is his legacy, oh. by the way, if you're Sorry. wondering. 
you know? And uh, I think I saw somebody talk about how he'll be remembered for this and that of being a savvy operator. And I thought he's probably not going to be remembered at all, to be perfectly honest. But if he is, it's just kind of a footnote in neoliberal austerity, you know? Yeah. So let's move past it. Grant um, Robinson, he did one of the biggest transfers of wealth to the wealthy <laughs> in the history the of Aotearoa. Yeah. Um, when you talk about, like, yeah, this kind of uh, historical... Um, uh, the predecessors to, you know, we shouldn't have identity politics, we shouldn't have wokeness, um, Jack and and Kyle as well. I think about how for all that people will praise the Keynesianism of the first major parliamentary Labour parties when they obtained power in this country, the state housing policy was discriminatory. discriminatory. Like it was a form of apartheid. People don't realise that they gave Māori smaller homes so that they would proliferate less. This was a eugenicist policy, right? This was an attempt at a kind of ethnic cleansing. People don't understand that that is the history of the Labour Party as well. There was no golden era where it was all good and Gucci and Parliament, right? It's always got to be this kind of pushback from the ground up. And I think unless we recognise that part of left-wing politics in New Zealand and in its history and understand something that kids might not remember, this is a really basic historical fact, um, but if you don't know this, you should know the founder of the ACT Party was a Labour MP. Just, just if you didn't know that, that explains like why we lost from the beginning in the 80s because it was a betrayal from the left. Is in order to have this uh, have a left-wing movement do anything, it has to be Indigenous politics for that exact reason. And another reason is even if you're going to come at us with that kind of um, <laughs> vulgar faux Marxism, the kind of, you know, like pretense at class politics, like we need to have a working class. First of all, who makes up the working class in this country predominantly, like in terms of proportion of ethnic population? Secondly, yeah, that failure of civic society is partly to do with the fact that what whiteness does is it totally erases actual community and ethnic identity. Like the identity of somebody in England in the 1300s from village to village, their, their identities were different. Their community was different. Their customs were different. Their dress was different. These are all things which are totally glossed over and erased by whiteness. So if you buy into racial politics at all, you've already lost because you've lost the notion of being able to build community and solidarity because that's that's what it does. That's what racial capitalism does, right? It just it erases this stuff. Thirdly, think about what you said, Jack, about how in the US it was the war on drugs, right? We have that same thing here. The Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 comes at an exact time where the Maori civil rights movement and the Maori renaissance was starting to pick up steam because it was an attempt to try to incarcerate people who become politically active. As a population, the way that we might be able to analyze part of Pacifica and Maori people in this country is as not just a super exploited kind of class of working people that that's kind of imposed upon them, but also as political prisoners. Half of our prison population is Māori, right? And guess what? We have unpaid or, or very lowly paid prison labour that is partially compelled. We have effectively a whitewashed slave labour in our prison system. So if you want to think about what a workers' party would mean, how can it not include those people who are under greater forms of oppression, right? How could it not include that? How can your politics, if it is supposed to be emancipatory, not remove the literal fetters on people who are disproportionately fettered. Tell me how that makes sense. But it doesn't make sense because, I mean, you know, putting it charitably, it's just kind of racism blinding these people and putting it cynically, it's a psyop. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and one that's been played out, like, yeah. over and over again. Um, it's, it's very simple kind of divide and conquer shit. And, and just to reiterate your point, Simon, they're not... Um trying to pretend either like they're doing they're doing this all in plain sight you know like um because your point around the misuse of drugs act just going back to the us for a second like nixon's advisor i forget his name um who um designed the the war on drugs um um i used to use this quote all the time when i went to the drug foundation i can't remember liat water's comment um was it sorry liat water is that his comment the one where he talked the one where he was talking about how you know they used um uh, the war on drugs to deliberately disrupt um, whether it was the hippies um, or um, the black civil rights movement. They would go into their meetings. They would, um, you know, they would arrest people. They would, um, they would disrupt those communities um, and prevent their political organizing um, through um, 
the um, through the criminalization of drugs. So yeah, um, I haven't got the quote, um, but that's paraphrasing it. Um, and so I think it's just, yeah, we have to continually um, remember that actually that they were very honest about what they were doing. Um, and it's um, just become so part of established, so much part of established discourse that um, has been accepted. Um, and yeah, that is the, the hellscape that we're currently living in. This feels like a good... Oh, sorry, Kyle. Uh, no, you're going to segue, so keep going through. I was going to say, this feels like a good place to transition into the Waitangi Tribunal and the Māori Health Authority. Is that where you were going? Absolutely. Same brain. <laughs> <laughs> On but, that wavelength. Like, Jack, you say, you know, they're very honest about it. Um, and in the current day politics um, here in New Zealand, uh, they're not openly... Um, saying that they're doing this stuff. Uh, in fact, they often, when questioned about it, um, the minister responsible will say the opposite. They're, they're just outright lying. Um, and a really good example of that is this uh, axing uh, of the Māori Health Authority, uh, where there was going to be an urgent inquiry uh, by the Waitangi Tribunal um, into the impacts of getting rid of the authority. Uh, and suddenly the entrance of the bill has been moved forward um, or at least been set uh, significantly earlier than anyone expected with very little warning from the government. Uh, and then when Minister of Health Shane Reti was asked about it, he said, oh, no, that's not what we're doing at all. Uh but although they're being dishonest in their words, I think this national government is being very honest in terms of the outcomes and the actions that they're taking. Like you can you can look at these, you can put them on a table in front of you and you know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, this isn't new. Um, all governments have um, disregarded um, the inquiries of the Waitangi Tribunal, uh, but it also speaks to the broader agenda of this government to undermine even further um, an already largely toothless tribunal. Uh, and so when the tribunal was first set up uh, in 1975, um, it was only um, mandated to look at contemporary claims post-1975. And when Matsurata was um, able to um, get that um, with the... Uh, um, get that backdated um, to um, consider historical claims stretching back to 1840. Um, that was what enabled the treaty settlement process uh, and the redress that we have um, seen, um, which um, will never end, by the way. Um, it's not something, a treaty isn't something that can be settled. It can only be implemented and honoured. But um, so in New Zealand's first coalition agreement with um, the National Party, uh, there was a commitment to revert um, the Waitangi tribunal or review the Waitangi tribunal with an aim to um, having it uh, the original intent of the legislation uh, is what the words use which is um, really odd given that Shane Jones who has been fronting this for them has been using that to attack contemporary claims which is what this is with the tribunal is contemporary claim um, despite the fact that, that was the original intent of the legislation so it's a really confused thing um, and they haven't fought it through properly but essentially what they're trying to do, which shows that what they're trying to do is undermine the mana um, and power of the Waitangi Tribunal because it is um, a judicial check, um, even if a very weak one, on the government. Uh, and so it's not surprising to me at all that they're um, trying to bring this forward ahead of the tribunal. Uh, but it's also important um, to recognise that even the previous government, um, Labour governments also, um, disregard the advice of the tribunal and usually try and um, uh, strategize um, around its timing um, of the hearings as well. So, yeah, it, it's not surprising, but we have to um, uh, resist it nonetheless. From from a civility norms perspective, what National has been doing is and should be a kind of scandal, right? Uh, even if you have that very um, centrist liberal institutional brain about it and that pattern of thinking about it, this should be highly concerning. So I went to the usual suspects, uh, the 
the constitutional law and the large legal figures who often comment on this stuff and are usually very active on Twitter, um, which is interesting um, if the work that you do is uh, so busy and important. Um, <laughs> and, uh, because you might remember that when Three Waters was potentially going to be entrenched. Actually, not even. It was very far away from that. This was a supplementary order paper, which was raised by somebody from the Greens who was, you know, kind of in government, but Labour didn't need them. And so, you know, this was uh, all highly theoretical, hypothetical stuff. The idea that we could entrench within, uh, to, to give kind of greater constitutional weight to the idea that Water is something which is a kind of public right. Um, and, uh, you know, in particular, the approach of Three Waters was intended to be that it is also something which is a tertiary obligation, right, to, that, that Māori have kaitiakitanga over it. Um, and, and therefore have to have at least a little bit of say about what, what is done with water in this country because it's so vital, yeah? Um, these are all just kind of, or they, they're supposed to be uncontroversial things. And the thought was that we should make it so that you need to have, you know, a 60-something percent vote to overturn this legislation because it's important to the country, right? There was an explosion about it on legal Twitter, among legal commentators in the news, because oftentimes that's very incestuous, right? All the reporters are on Twitter and they, they kind of perceive that to be a kind of reality with the important people on there. And all these people talking about how, how terrible it was. So given that National has been passing a lot of bills under urgency, when usually it takes months and months, sometimes, you know, close to a year to pass a single bill, they've been doing it in a couple of days or within a single day. Um, this is a power in Parliament which is reserved for emergency measures. Like, for example, there is a natural disaster. We just had the beginning of a pandemic in which uh, these frameworks needed to be put into place very quickly, right, to save human life. National has been using those same powers, these emergency powers, to pass its highly controversial, quote unquote, we might say, and uh, also what we in the business like to call profoundly evil bits of legislation very quickly without any sort of public input. So we kind of select committee, people can't come and actually submit to this properly, or they have a day to submit, something like that, right? So I went looking for what all of these people had kicked up a fuss during the Labour government um, had to say about this since they cared about norms so much. And some of them, um, can I use names? Is that okay? Mm. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe it depends what names. Is it people that we hate or is it people that we like? <laughs> I, th I think, I think uh, keep names out of it for now. I think people generally yeah. know who you're talking about. Yeah, okay. So somebody with a bluey PFP um, <laughs> has been retweeting uh, David Farrow and Liam Hare and other people who are sort of these right-wing mud and shit slingers. And... Um, kind of can't see almost anything about this very interesting curious um yeah so nothing on that i'm um, speaking for some major legal figures people who who lectured me for example and who i've talked to and have had coffee with um have said things like this is worrying practice you know a hundred day plan does not excuse bad lawmaking process this is circumventing the select committee scrutiny and public submission and the reason for that is that there's an interplay between representative and participatory democracy it's being glossed over here you know which is it's a little bit of concern you know but that same person for the COVID 19 framework called it a constitutional disgrace to pass that under urgency and the Chief Human Rights Commissioner at the time said there was considerable concern for the human rights implications of passing this COVID legislation. Very curious how something which was about saving human life in a natural disaster, that that was disgraceful. But this total violation of norms, in effect, running Russia over Indigenous rights of poor bashing in some cases. Um, and in this particular case, this is, you know, attacking our health system with the particular racialized bent to it. No, not so much wrong with that. It's a little bit of a concern, right? Or somebody else saying, while our drafters are excellent, there's seldom a piece of legislation that doesn't benefit from submissions. Even if the improvements are only technical, that means government has a better effect. What are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? Improving the legislation. The premise behind it is horrific. That's the concern, right? And they are doing it under urgency because they know that shock and awe is the only way they can get this through because it takes time to mobilize people. They're at the hands and the levers of government, but it takes time to organize 
um, Hui and Hikoi, and it takes time to actually mount some sort of resistance against this or you know, sabotage or some form of, of labor obstruction, right? All of these things are difficult. And it's, I think, you know, something you point out very rightly, Jack, is to its credit, Te Ao Māori has had a lot of these um, communication lines and abilities to organize already in place because you're constantly fighting always, right? So there's been a lot more pushback on these matters, um, and especially, you know, the attempts on the attacks on the Māori Health Authority and and attempting to undermine the Waitangi Tribunal, tribunal because this is already in place. Certainly, it's done a lot better than, than Te Ao Pākehā has done with these matters, but still, it's a real uphill battle, and it's being aided and abetted, again, by the press. But it just concerns me that you can look at that stark difference in the constitutional lawyers of this country about what they care about and what's important, what's a disgrace and what's not, right? And attacking Māori, well, it's not great lawmaking, but it's not a disgrace. Yeah, it's been a really, it's been really clear how little outcry uh, there has been about the capital class flexing its its muscle um, under this reactionary right-wing national government um and it's you know it's because they've got mates who are part of that class or they are part of that class themselves as much as anything else this is seen as normal this is like oh this is just kind of what they do uh whereas when you see that stuff from the left that's new and scary that might threaten me in some way uh and yeah i think we don't give some people who are who do commentary or who, who we rely on to analyze what's happening in politics or in civil society enough credit for how class conscious they are and i mean that in like a derogatory <laughs> way yeah there's this idea i think that norms and civility and our usual way of running things is value neutral and that it is simply the way that things are done and even if we allied the fact that it is the way that things are done is a kind of class warfare already. It is the domination of one class over another, right? Even if that's the case, there is still a disparity in reaction between when those rules are bent or broken because it is the natural, God-given, divine right of the capitalists to destroy and remake the state as they see fit in fascistic sense, right? But heaven forfend anybody, even through parliamentary means, through our bourgeois parliament, use its machinery to help people. You can't do that or to entrench particular kinds of human or natural or environmental rights, you know, which is still a liberal ethos. This isn't particularly communist, you know, in approach. But still, even that is a bridge too far. And I think something that's, um, you know, a shame in, in Aotearoa is that there has never been a particularly strong awareness of an analysis of the political media establishment like there is for example in the uk you know it's just in the uk it's talked about um it's very obvious and you know it but and it's much you know it, its historical roots go much deeper of course because of the um the bourgeoisie and the um the aristocracy which you know is hundreds of thousands of years old um, but, you know, it's really important to remember, and I've been up close and seen it firsthand, so it's, I guess I'm much more conscious of it than many people in the average population, of the revolving door that also exists here in Aotearoa. And, you know, these um, journalists and politicians and lobbyists aren't just all buddies and don't just all party um, together and hang out together and... Um, exist on Twitter together, but they also um, move between jobs uh, with each mm -hmm. other. And um, it's all a very incestuous um, cesspool um, of Beltway politics in Wellington. Um, you have lobby groups um, or consultancies, or whatever you want to call them, who um, are made up of both former Labour and former national advisors who advise um, successive governments and who um, take corporate uh, um, jobs um, to lobby uh, for specific ends, and you know it's it's so um, it's so well hidden in New Zealand that it often gets missed. But you know when you look at um, the ability to stymie progressive um, policies, 
it's not just the weakness of the politicians. It's 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 because there is a deliberate system in place to prevent that from happening and to um, ostracize genuinely progressive or outspoken um, people from um, from the systems of government. And so, you know, even if you've worked in that place for a long time, if you refuse to um, play by those rules, you'll never become, you'll never, you'll never get the power that you uh, need to actually implement those changes. And you'll always be seen um, and ostracized um, as the radical that you are. And so, you know, there you can see that in people who are in parliament now, who are, um, there's not many of them, but there are some who are genuinely um, radical and, and progressive and leftist, but they will never be given the leader, uh, given access to the levers of power to actually bring about any substantive um, change. So, yeah, we have to, um, I think, draw on the analysis that we see, um, whether it's in the UK or the US or other Western democracies, about um, the power of the and role of the establishment and as left-wingers use that in our critique um, more often and expose um, those, um, those incestuous um, relationships and um, ways of operating. Yeah, there is something to the idea that uh, the old joke goes that everybody in New Zealand is two degrees of separation from each other. Mm. You know, you'll meet somebody who, I mean, I, I lived at one point in my life in a very small village of like, you know, I don't know, fewer than 200 people in the far north in the Hokianga. And then I've met people who are like, oh, I know that place because I, you know, knew people who have a family from there or whatever it is. You know, it's, mm. it's wild. You know, you meet that sort of thing. But people don't understand that what that means is for exactly what you were saying when you have that kind of political politically active class, the what I suppose um, I think was Lippmann called the professional class of responsible men who are intended to, to rule the society, right? That mm. it's a very small group and it is very incestuous. It's interesting. This is just a little tidbit as a slight digression, but New Zealand's prior, like our kind of leading case on, on uh, resolving conflicts of interest in law, which is about, you know, um, a lawyer and a judge who had horse racing interests with each other or business interests with each other um it was held that there was not a conflict of interest however it could create the perception of it and that's not okay so i thought that that was kind of funny and interesting because you know obviously the legal profession protects itself we've just seen um the crown warrant holder in kirikiriroa jacinda hamilton rather appropriately named has been cleared of bullying charges but if you read the description of what was found about the workplace it's a pretty good it's bullying, right? It's horrific bullying, like throwing staplers at people and all sorts. But, but of course, she's allowed to continue to hold the crown warrant for prosecution um, because, you know, nobody can actually be punished in some way in, in a small pool like the legal profession here. And the political class is the same. And reporters in the press are very similar to that, right? The way that you can fall from grace is if you attempt to do something which might in some way be seen to be good or democratic. Like Claire Curran, for example, had a meeting with um, one of the higher-ups from RNZ, and she wanted to have to increase public interest journalism in New Zealand and to broaden RNZ's ambit and to make TVNZ public again rather than corporatized. And she lost her job over it because somebody looked through and said, ah, oh, she's had a meeting from one of the higher ups with RNZ. This is a, this is a conflict of interest. This is corruption. And in a certain sense, yes, that's right. That's breaking down the wall, which, you know, you're not supposed to break down, but everyone does that all the time. There is very famously a lobbyist from sky city who didn't even need a pass to get into parliament because he could just walk in and he was so well known and would just go into, he could talk to any MP, get anything that he wanted this happens all the time. People don't understand the extent to which this is true. And something that I that I think is really funny as a little tidbit is um, the New Zealand constantly tops Transparency International's poll uh, polls of um, uh, lack of corruption. But what deceived, people don't understand is that yeah, is that it's perceived corruption. It's not that New Zealand doesn't have this form of controlling corruption. It's that we're really gullible and naive because we lack that analysis because we don't have that great tradition of it. And maybe that's something we need to start getting the analytical tools for, you know, mm -hmm. like you were saying that that kind of shines a light on all of this. And then afterwards to say, well, you know how, if we don't have a civic society, how do we build it? How do we take from what is existing in the Māori from Māori and make that something where 
you know, people can uh, take that and have that be a leadership for something as opposed to just it existing kind of ghettoized in its own bubble, right? You know, and have that indigenous-led left-wing movement. I think that's a good place to wrap it up because we're out of time. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Jack and Simon. Thanks, Kyle. Great to, Great to talk with that's, you both. Yeah, it was really good to meet you. This is it's also a really kind of difficult episode, right? Because we started off with a great loss and then how do you kind of talk about what comes after that? But but thank you for, for convening this. Yeah. Kia ora. And thank you to our audience. Thanks for listening. Uh, share, like, subscribe, and and get to work, everybody. Let's let's really take uh, some of the words of Fessel Collins to heart and be the pallbearers of neoliberalism. Let's let's see this the system out because it's actively harming and, and destroying our communities and our peoples. That's been another episode of One of Two Hundred. We'll catch you next week. If Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain